Sermon. How, how many of you guys of in, intro video is dated? Can you tell me why it's dated? Any, any reasons? Flip phone, right? How long has it been since that? I think Steve Shirelicki in the back still has a flip phone. Okay, those haven't been around in a long time. What else did you notice? The iPod? Those are still around. They're just rare, right? But uh, I want to welcome you to our, our service here this morning. We are uh, in our series called The Passport to the Land of Enough. If you're a guest, we're really, really glad you're here this morning. Uh, we've been having this conversation, and that's what we do in these series. We have conversations about a particular thing. And I don't know if you know this or not, but you live in the land that is different from any other land, although there's a lot of smoke uh, in the air. You live in a place that most of the world can't identify with. Do you know that? Do you know that you have enough? Do you know that you have more than enough? And that's what we're looking at. We're doing this whole series to get perspective. And you may not have a U.S. passport, but if you live here in this, in this country, if you live in this area, you have another passport, and it's called To the Land of Enough. And I just want to say this. Uh, we've got this, this book that goes with the series. It's very, very, very good. Okay, so I want to encourage you. Pick one up today for six bucks. You go through the daily devotionals. There's family devotionals where you can sit down. There's a, there's a, a recipe for a local cuisine uh, on, on how to make local food. Uh, last week was India. This week is Africa. You're going to learn how to make this week peanut butter stew. So you're going, man, I don't know about it. I like that. Hey, try it. That's what our brothers and sisters in Africa is a staple diet. Okay? Uh, I think it was pilota that we had last week, right? Did you guys try to make that? The flatbread? Okay, from India? Okay, these are local cuisines, but you get to know real-life situations of our brothers and sisters in India and Africa and different places and what their lifestyle is like. Uh, and, and just to give you an idea, some of our brothers and sisters make uh, basically an average of $2.50 a day, okay? And, and, and they don't sit around and collect that. They work nine-hour days, six days a week, and that's what they make in a day. And so this book really tells you about what life is like for our brothers and sisters around the world. And it gives us perspective. So that's why we've been doing this series. And uh, if you missed last week, you can go to our website, lighthousecoc.com. And also there's another website that goes with this series called landofenough.com, landofenough.com. If you forgot your book, uh, you can go to the website and it has the same information, okay? Just not as much detail. Uh, one of the challenges they have each week is what would it be like for you and your family to live in one room of your house? Any of you try that? Okay, so you pick one room and that's where you're going to live that day. Can't use the other rooms. And why do you do that? Because that's the way the real world is for our brothers and sisters. They only have one room instead of you. Some of you teens, you got your room, right? How about one room for the whole family, including the kitchen? And then if you want to, you can move the bathroom outside uh, if you want the real experience. But just that. Or try this week to live on $2.50 in one day. Just try it and see what it's like. And that's what you're going to see in this, in this whole experience of Land of Enough. And the whole reason why we're doing this series is to give us, if we could bring that down a little bit, is to give us perspective. Okay? Perspective. And it's not just about money, because some of you think, well, this is only about money. No, this is, you don't realize we have enough time and we have enough money, more than enough. And the real question is, in these third world places where our brothers and sisters live, who we support with our missions contribution, guess what they have less of? We know they have less money, but guess what else they have less of? Time. They don't have things called washers and dryers, which save you what? time. So they don't have a lot of time. They have to go spend three hours basically washing their clothes by hand. And a lot of things like that, dishwasher, those kinds of conveniences that we have. For example, transportation, you and I drive from one place to the other. They take public transportation. How much longer would it take for you to get to work if you took public transportation? 
How much longer would it have taken you this morning to get to church if you took public transportation? A lot longer, right? That's their world. So we're talking about these things. Although they have less of this and less of this, but guess what they have more of? More heart. Here's my experience when I go and visit our our brothers and sisters in third world countries and they live in a shack, a one-room shack. I go in their house and guess what they start giving me? They want to feed me. They want to do things for me. And I say, you know what? I can't eat your food. I'm sorry. I don't want to insult you, but I will get a severe, severe stomachache if I eat your food because your bacterias are different than my bacterias. And I've got firsthand experience on what that's like. Okay, so... But it's amazing to me how much they want to give and give and give, and they have so little. And yet when people come over to our house, we'll say at the door, what do you want? What what are you selling? How hospitable are we, really, when we've got more of this and more of this? Sometimes we don't even answer the door when people knock. Nobody's home, right? Close the curtains. What's that say about us? Gosh, guys, if there's anything we need is this, and we need perspective. We need perspective. So that's why we're doing this. So today we're going to do a little history lesson. How many of you guys like history? Go ahead and raise your hand if you like history. Okay? Did you get an A in history? Okay? I didn't. I got, I got like B's and C's in history. In fact, I got B's and C's in a lot of my classes just being real, right? Started off that way in the welcome. But history is really important. Why is history so important? History tells us where we've been, which affects where we are, and which affects where we're going. History is so important. And I want to make a recommendation. I'm going to make a plug today for the museum, the California Museum of Science. Okay, right now, through September 7th, there is an exhibition called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Phenomenal. I've been twice. Phenomenal exhibition. And what this does for us, it basically tells us that what we're following here in the scriptures is not a once upon a time story. We're following history. We're following times and places. And what's backed up this history? Artifacts. Archaeological artifacts. It is the coolest thing. You get to see things you get to see these scrolls, part, par, particles of the scrolls that date back before the New Testament times that confirm what we have here is the same as what was written back then. It basically verifies what we are reading and what we're following to old copies, very, very old copies of the Old Testament. Now, there are no New Testament copies in the Dead Sea Scrolls because it was before these scrolls were written before the time of the New Testament. So we're going to do a little history lesson. You say, well, I don't know if I got time to go to the Dead Sea Scrolls exhibit. Uh, Let me me just show you a picture of somebody who had time. Anybody know who this is? Can you tell who it is? Who is it? It's the President of the United States. If there's anybody in this country who has less time than you or me, who is it? Man, he's busy. I hate it when people come up to me and say, I know you're busy. I'm not busy. I'm not that busy. I'm not as busy as he is. He went to the the Franklin Museum, the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia to visit the Dead Sea Scrolls exhibit. Do you know why he went? Because he wanted to get perspective. Do you know how important this exhibition is as it pertains to our world right now? Do you know the conflict that's going on in the Middle East right now? And it all revolves around these scrolls, which is the Old Testament, from which came the, the Islam, which from which came, you know, Judaism, from which came Christianity. All had their origin in the Old Testament. And so if he has the time, I just want to encourage you. It's 20 bucks for adults, about 16 for students, okay? And, and, and it's, it's worth every penny, and I highly recommend before the exhibit leaves that you go. Okay, because it's blow away. You're looking at artifacts that are thousands of years old, things that tie in to what the scriptures teach. There's one jar, it really blew me away, that had the inscription on the jar, King Hezekiah. And to think, man, this was in King Hezekiah's palace, and he used it for water. 
And so it verifies what we're following is not fables and stories, it's history. People, times and places, events that are significant. So that's why I want to encourage you to, to look at that. Here's a quote. Those who don't remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Why is it important for us to understand history? And if you want to understand incredible history is the scriptures. This book tells us an incredible story about a people who struggled in their relationship with God. Guess what we are going to do? We are going to struggle in our relationship with God. But if we read and understand what they did, we can maybe overcome our own struggles in our relationship with God. And maybe we can have perspective so that we can not repeat the past, but go higher and, and, and reach a different level in our relationship with God. Wouldn't it be foolish of us to repeat history over and over again, to see us doing the same stupid things over and over again? Isn't that idiotic? So I want to encourage you. We're going to do a little history lesson, so I'm going to talk with you about idols, idols today. Okay, idols. Here's one of the first two commandments that God gave his people, Exodus chapter 20, verse 3 and 4. It says here, first two, number one and number two, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Why did God give his people, Israel, these commandments? Because, and his number one and number two, because he wanted to have a relationship with his people. And guess what was going to compete for that relationship? Idols. Of all things, idols. And we're going to learn something incredible today. There, there's a number of idols, and the reason why is because the world at this time was filled with these false images, false idols, gods. They called them gods. And God was saying, you don't want to go there. And so we're going to learn about some of them today. I want to introduce to you the, the first prominent, per, prominent god of, of the Old Testament, and his name is Baal. Very prominent. This is actually an artifact from the time that was found in, in, in Canaan. And these, these, these uh, little statuettes were found all over the place. And his name is Baal. He was the principal god of the, of the Canaanites. Uh, there was a showdown, a very famous showdown between Elijah and, and Baal in, in 1 Kings chapter 18. In Judges chapter 6, Gideon basically tears down his father's idol, Baal. Okay, and this, so this is, this is one of the, the gods. And let me introduce you to Baal's girlfriend. Her name is Asherah. Okay, Asherah. She was, she was also a Canaanite uh, goddess. She was the goddess of fertility, and they would build these poles. What they are is they're poles called Asherah poles, and they would literally fashion them out of wood, construct them, and, and worship these, these poles called Asherah poles. Uh, 2 Chronicles 31 describes a, a cleansing of the land of Israel, and so these, the land of Israel was covered with these poles, and the king went around and cut these poles down saying to the people. Now, this is Dagon. This was a, the Philistine god. There's a very famous story about this Philistine god uh, in 1 Samuel 5 when the ark of the Lord was put in Dagon's temple. And they woke up in the morning, and guess what Dagon was doing the very next morning in front of the, the ark of the Lord? Basically, this huge statue, statue was pushed down on its face and they woke up in the morning, they were astonished. How did this happen? How is it that Dagon, this idol that we fashioned, is down on his face? So they propped him up again. The very next day, what happened to this idol Dagon? They woke up the next morning. Dagon was missing his hands and his feet or his tail and was down on the ground again. And God was trying to make a point to the Philistines. Okay, so this is another one. He was the grain god. Okay, and here's another, another one, uh, Ishtar. She was a, an Assyrian or Babylonian queen of heaven. She was also a goddess of fertility. 
And now we have the golden calf. How many of you know about the golden calf? Who fashioned the golden calf? Incredible. The Israelites basically created this idol after they left Egypt because Moses was gone. And they said, we got to have somebody to worship. And Moses is not here to give us direction. So we're going to make our own God. And look what they did. They made their own God out of, they fashioned him out of gold. And this event happened in Exodus 32, but this calf reappears in 1 Kings 12 again. Then we got the worst one of them all. He is clearly the worst one of them all, the god Molech. Okay, he was the Ammonite. He was their principal god, and they worshiped him by offering living children in a burnt offering sacrificing to this god. And God, God basically said, man, this is the worst of them all because of what you're doing. And the Israelites basically took their baby children before this God and burned alive their baby children as a sacrifice to this God. A piece of stone. And there's, there's mention of this in Leviticus 18.21 and 2 Kings 23 uh, and also Jeremiah 32. And then we know about this, uh, this god. He is Zeus. Uh, he was a Greek mythology character. He was the, the main character. He appears in the Bible also in Acts chapter 14. Guess what they called? They called Barnabas Zeus, and they called Paul, anybody know? Hermes. Because they were doing these miraculous things, and they thought they were gods. So these are some of the Greek mythology. We can go on and on, but I'm just giving you a, a few. Now, what does God feel about these, these idols? There's one more I want to tell you about in the New Testament, Beelzebub. He was a Philistine god. He was considered the lord of the flies. In Matthew 20, 12, verse 24, Beelzebub, they accused Jesus of using Beelzebub's power to do his miracles. Guess who accused Jesus of doing that? the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders. He's saying, you're doing this by demon power. And Jesus says, no house can stand on its own if it's divided. If I'm doing it by demon power, then why am I defeating Satan's own work? He says, you make no sense. And then he confronted them and he says, if I'm doing it by demon power, who are your followers doing it by? In other words, they weren't doing any miracles. They had zero power. And so Jesus, Jesus is, is confronting them, but this is, this is one of the gods. So what does God feel about idol worship? Here in Psalm 135, describes for us, the idols of these nations are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak, eyes, but they cannot hear. Who makes idols? They're man-made. All of them. They're fashioned by people. They're made out of wood, stone, metal. They have mouths, but they can't speak. And they have eyes, but they can't see. He goes on, he says, they have ears, but cannot hear, nor is their breath in their mouths. Those who make them will become like them. And so will all who trust in them. So in other words, if you follow an idol, you're going to become like that idol. Guess what that means? You will become lifeless heartless, and you'll become basically a person that's not really living, a stone, meaningless. And this is a strong, strong statement. He goes on in Isaiah 46, verse 7, it says, they lift, they lift it, talking about idols, they lift it to their shoulders and carry it, they set it up on its, on its place, and there it stands. From that spot, it cannot move. Even though someone cries out to it, it cannot answer. It cannot save them from their troubles. And this is God via his prophets confronting the people of Israel about their idols. Now, here's one of the things that, that happened to me when I was at the Dead Sea Scrolls. I was at this, this wall of artifacts. And, you know, I got the, the, the you know, because when I go, I like to hear everything, read everything, he and, and, and hear everything. They have this tour guide on a recording. And I'm standing in front of this wall when the tour guide says to me, among all these artifacts which they found, 
a lot of artifacts, thousands of years old. Guess what else we found? And they weren't on display because it would be, it would be insulting to people of Jewish descent. But it gives you a perspective, along with all of these artifacts, get us what they found in abundance in the promised land. During the same time, the Israelites occupied the promised land. Guess what they found? Idols. Large amounts of these idols that I just showed you. They were in their tents. They were in their meeting places. They found them all over the place. What does that tell you about the Israelites in their history, they struggled mightily with idolatry. And that was sad. You know, I was hearing that, and I just said, how sad that the people of Israel were basically going back and forth, back and forth, God, idols, God, idols. So sad. But before we get too judgmental on the Israelites and the Jewish people of that time, we better ask ourselves a question. They may not have the same name, but do we have a problem with idolatry? Now, even in the New Testament, let's move up to the New Testament. Look at what Paul said to the church, the church Christians in the book of, in the letter he wrote to the Corinthians. He says, therefore, my dear children, or my dear friends, flee from idolatry. What was going on in Corinth? A lot of idolatry. A lot of it. In fact, in the New Testament, it's talked about a lot. They'd have these barbecues. Now, on May 3rd, we're having a big barbecue. Okay? And all of you are welcome to stay and enjoy. And we're going to, you know, have a great time celebrating our mission's contribution after service. But imagine they had a barbecue, but in the middle of the barbecue was this food has been offered in the sacrifice to an idol, one of the ones that we mentioned, or a different one. And Paul is saying here, stay away from idolatry. Stay clear of it. And it was a challenge for the first century Christians also. 1 John chapter 5, the very last verse of his letter is the last thing that John said in his first letter, the Apostle John. This is the last verse, and look at what he says. Dear children, Keep yourselves from what? Idols. Why did he have to tell them that? I mean, they're Christians. They're followers of Jesus. They, they worship God, the, the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but nobody else. They know better, right? Why has he got to say this? Because it's a struggle, isn't it? It's a challenge. I left one God out of the Bible, and I want to introduce you to him. Jesus talked about him. And here's the question I want to ask you. If you are surrounded by a world of idolatry and don't have a genuine relationship with God, what happens? You tell me. If you're not going to worship God, guess who you're going to worship? Somebody's going to fill that space. And do you know this interesting? This is uh, sociology, history of mankind all over the world. Do you know that the most primitive civilizations of every place and every culture, every language all over the planet, do you know that even the most primitive people who have no clue develop some form of forming and worshiping a God? Even in the Amazon jungle, guess what they do? They worship somebody. They fashion a God, they invent a God, and they worship all over the world. Guess what that tells you about us? We were created to worship. But we better be very careful that we worship the right God. And we follow the right God. And so what happens if you don't have a genuine relationship with God? You're going to be sent. So there's one more God I left out. This is Mammon, okay? He is mentioned in Luke chapter 16. Basically, this is a, a word, a, a, a Messianic Hebrew word, meaning money or wealth. Uh, it also means that in one in which one trusts. Now, I'm sure that none of us struggle with idolatry here today. 
or do we? Guess what is God's number one competitor? Money. It's the number one competitor. And if you're honest with yourself, you're going to realize, man, this is the one thing that can come between me and God. And, you know, I know we're doing our special missions contribution, and you're saying, well, this is all a ramp up for the special missions contribution. And we do it every year right before a special missions contribution. Let me just say this. In the bold print, keep your money. Don't give it to special missions contribution. In fact, don't give your weekly contribution. That's not the motivation. The whole reason why we do this series of some shape or fashion once a year is because God's relationship has one competitor, and that's money. And if you're not going to know what's going on with money in your life, guess what's going to happen? It could ruin you, as it ruins so many people today. So many people. So I want you to be aware of this God called mammon. And Jesus mentions, Jesus in Luke chapter 16, he talks about a parable of a shrewd manager. Okay, he was lazy also, didn't do a very good job, and so his, his, his boss, his, his owner basically said, okay, you're not doing a good job, I'm firing you right now. And so he goes into a panic, the shrewd manager, and he says, I, I, I'm, I'm too lazy to work in the hot sun, uh, and I don't have any other skills than this, so I got to figure out something to do. So he calls in all the debtors, all the people that owe the, his, his owner money, and he says, I'll cut your debt in half, pay me now. And then I'll have friends who will invite me into their house because I cut their debt in half. And so Jesus talks about the manager says to the, 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 the owner of the manager says to him, he, he basically esteems him and says, hey, you did a good thing. And he encourages his shrewd, lazy manager who he fired. That, man, this is interesting that you did this because you're looking out for your future. And Jesus makes a point of this parable. He says, people of this world are very good at using money to get what they want. And we as disciples need to look at money differently and say we need to use money to gain friends and make a difference in the world. He's basically saying you can use money as a tool to make a difference. And look what Jesus said in Luke 16, verse 13. He says, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despised or despise the other, and you cannot serve God and mammon. In your NIV translation, it meant God and what? Money. But the original translation, back to the King James, mentions this word, mammon, which is the God of money. And so, Really, the question comes down to, in your life, because this is God's number one competitor, in your life, if you're honest, who's greater? Who's greater? Is God greater or is money greater? i got to be honest with you guys. Spiritually speaking, money has created a problem for me. It's created a problem. And it's a competitor in this land of enough because we have so much money we have to decide how much is enough instead of saying man I got more than enough let me figure out a way that I can leverage as Jesus' point let me, let me leverage this so I can advance the kingdom of God so I can help the poor and the needy and so I can store up treasure for myself later But you can tell this equation. The answer to this equation is you can see it in your checkbook. Where's the money going towards? It describes your heart. That itemized, you know, account that shows you on your credit card where your money's going, it can tell you right away how much is going to God, to the poor, the needy, to good causes, and how much is going to yourself and the making and the perpetuating of more money. This is a huge question. You know how how serious it is in our environment today? Television. Think about the reality programs that are in television right now. Okay? How many of them are about 
popular programs about helping the poor and the needy. Can you think of one that was really popular not too long ago? That was really popular about helping the poor and the needy. Extreme Makeover, right? You remember, it was very popular. Nine seasons. And they ended it. How come nothing's nothing's replaced it? But we have an abundance, and they keep coming more and more. you got reality shows about professional athletes, uh, uh, professional uh, actors. You've got red carpet shows, and they're loaded. They're loaded. You've got all kinds of people, rock stars, celebrities, and they bring a camera into their house, and they're following them around, all their drama and their dysfunction. And we get enthralled by that. And it's so popular in our society today. And maybe, maybe late night TV, in the middle of the night in one of the back channels, you'll find a program where they're asking you for money to help the poor and the needy around the world. To give them water, health care. But it's not prevailing. And so you got, you, we got to be honest about our society. What's it, what's it, what are we being bombarded with all the time? Idolatry. And that we're living in a land that it's not enough. How can I overcome idolatry? How can I, how can I break free of this temptation? And not just idolatry, any other struggle in your life. And here's the answer. Know and live in a relationship with your heavenly father. That's how you can overcome your struggle with idolatry. Jesus is about to teach us how to do that. In a situation that his disciples, the 12, asked him a question, and we're going to pick it up in Luke 11. One day, Luke 11, verse 1, it says, One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. And two of these 12 were, in fact, John's disciples. Now, why did they, if two of them were disciples and they knew how to pray the way John taught them how to pray, why are they each in teach, asking Jesus to teach them how to pray like Jesus does? Because Jesus obviously had a little more than John the Baptist, didn't he? A little more power, a little more control over himself. He lived a level higher, and they were noticing, man, Jesus, you've got something special. We want that. We want what you have. John the Baptist, I'll settle for John the Baptist's relationship with God any day, any day. But if you can go a little higher, wouldn't you want a little more? And that's why they're asking Jesus, teach us to pray. There's something about you, Jesus. We want that. We want what you have. We desperately need it because we don't want to be like everybody else. We want to be like you. So teach us how to pray so we can overcome idolatry, we can overcome impatience, we can overcome pornography, we can overcome drunkenness, drug, substance abuse, whatever it is. Because you obviously, Jesus, don't have a problem with that. So teach us, will you? And Jesus starts right, Jesus is so awesome. He doesn't waste any time. He says, this is how you do it, guys. You ready? This is how you do it, verse two. He said to them, when you pray, say this, Father. Now, this is radical. This is the first time this is ever introduced. When you talk to God, you talk to him in a relationship. Heavenly Father. And you and I take it for granted. Jesus is inviting us into a family relationship, a name intimate name relationship with God. See, when you understand God as your father, there's something that moves your heart. That God is inviting us into a relationship. Not into a genie where you rub the lamp and gimme, 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 gimme. No, 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 a relationship. God, I want your heart. Father, I want your heart. I want you in my life. And so when you pray, pray with that mindset. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And you can go on and read the rest, which is an incredible outline to prayer. It's interesting, this this outline, the Lord's Prayer, it's actually the disciples' prayer, is never repeated in action. Why do you think that is? Jesus said, this is how you pray, and it's never repeated in Scripture. Because it's an outline. Okay? 
It's not something we should be repeating over and over again because he talked about that. Don't, don't keep babbling in your prayers. Pray from your heart. I want you. I want what you're thinking about, what you're praying about. I want your heart. Talk to me about you. And so we jump down to verse 9. And he says this, and this, is, this gives us a, a glimpse into God's heart. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Right before this verse, Jesus t- makes a comparison of a friend who needs some bread in the middle of the night. And what will the friend do if you keep knocking and knocking and knocking? What will he do? He'll get up. He'll give you the bread. Right? He'll be a little mad at you, but he'll get up and give you the bread. He's making a a comparison of extremes. If your friend who's late at night in bed with his whole family, if you can get him up, what about your heavenly father? And he makes a point here in verse 9. He's saying, ask and it will be given. What's this tell you about God? He's waiting for you to ask. He's waiting for you to ask. And it will be given. This is a promise. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. So here's a great phrase. Ask, seek, and knock. Ask, seek, and knock. He goes on in verse 10 and he says this. For everyone who asks, receives. Now notice when he says asks, It's an action verb, meaning ongoing. How should we pray? All the time. Ongoing. Not once. Not in church and that's it for the rest of the week. But ongoing. If you ask, you receive. The one who seeks, finds. And those who knock, the door will be opened. Now, he goes on to say in this next part, which I I really, really, really love about Jesus. For which of you fathers, any fathers in the room here today? He's making a point here. If you're a dad and you've got a son and a daughter, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? He's making an extreme comparison here. I mean, Fish and eggs were a staple for food in, in Palestine. But when, when your son asks you for something, what, what do you do? Dads? No, nah, I'm not giving you that. I'm going to give you a snake instead. I mean, who would do that? A normal father. I mean, I know there's some crazies out there. <laughs> I'm saying a dad. You, you guys are teens. You, you're going to have kids one day. If your son comes up to you and asks you, hey, Dad, can I have a dollar? Would you give him a thorn? You know, would you give him something harmful, hazardous? Well, here's a little bottle of arsenic instead. Who would do that? I mean, you love your son. And here's something about me. I know this. When my son asks for me, I want to give it to him. And I've gotten in, you know, bumps with my wife over this at times because it's just such an inclination. And she's like, you shouldn't give him that. You shouldn't do that for him because it might hurt him. I'm like, man, I just want to give my son. Because I love him. I want to I give him what he's asking for. That's a dad. A daughter asks you for something, you, you want to give it. But what, what if he takes it and hurts himself or hurts herself with it? It's a risk, isn't it? Parents, you know this. It's a risk. And God takes the same risk. He gives you what you want. Sometimes when there's a risk that you may hurt yourself with it or you may abuse it or you may do something harmful to other people with it. And this describes God's relationship with us. Jesus is painting a picture for us. It's so important that we understand. If you then, okay, dads, if you then, though you are evil, right? Can we get on the same page about that? Yeah, I'm evil. I'm, I'm, I, got, I got problems. 
but I can do some good, right? I can do some good. If you're though evil, if you know how to do this, give good. How to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father in heaven give you? Now, this is so important. He will give you the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. What do you and I need the most if we really want this relationship with God? If we really want to come, not just idolatry, any struggle, any struggle that you have in your life. I mean, I don't know how many of you have ever read the scriptures, but sometimes I feel like God's asking me to do the impossible. It's hard for me to love people who are ignorant idiots who can't think straight. I don't say that. Okay, I'm just, but I think it. You think it too. Don't lie. There's people that you find it hard to love, don't you? Mmm, drive me crazy. You may be married to him. Or her. And we're just being real. They push your buttons. God, you're asking me to love him or her, love my teenager. She drives me crazy. You know? And, and God, sometimes he's like, he's asking us to do the impossible. And why is that? Why is that? Because the only way you're going to be able to do this is by a supernatural power. It's the only way. It's the only way you're going to be able to overcome idolatry in a world full of idolatry. I mean, you walk out of this door today, I guarantee you, you're going to be invited to buy something, to do something, to spend your money on you. How are you going to overcome that? How are you going to overcome that addiction that you've struggled with for so long? How are you going to overcome pornography that's got a grip on you? How are you going to overcome that? How are you going to make it through this challenging circumstance that you're facing that you don't know if you're going to make it? How are you going to make it? The Holy Spirit. And so I want to give you homework this week. Just like the persistent widow that Jesus described later on in the Gospel of Luke, I want to encourage you to ask, seek, and knock, but very specifically, God, give me your Holy Spirit. Not a little, not half full. I want the full measure, just like the disciples when they began this whole conversation in Luke chapter 11, verse 1. He says, Jesus, teach us to pray. And he ends it here and he says, listen, when you pray, ask for him. Ask for him. Ask for the Holy Spirit. And I know some of you, you're going, mm, isn't that the Holy Spirit? Isn't that kind of weird thing in the, What's that going to happen? Am I going to, you know, do some weird stuff? No, 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 no. We're, see, that, that stuff out there, we're talking about a close relationship with God where he's in your life. He gives you the power to say no to stuff. I can't tell you how I survived two and a half years living on a college campus 24-7 in South Florida. I don't know how I did it as a Christian when it was a, a horrific environment for a young man, 21 years old. How do you do that? It's right here. That's the only way I made it. I mean, temptation, te temptation wasn't just knocking at the door. Temptation opened the door, came into our dorm room, and said, here I am. Literally, I'm telling you, this is how it went down. And you, you put, a Christian, put a Christian on that young college student and say, well, I'm a Christian. Oh, boy, it's like putting a bullseye on you. The girls are coming for you as a prize. And it was hard. I remember nights I would, I would, I would weep. I'd say, God, 
I just want to be pure. I just want to be righteous. I want to honor women. I don't want to treat them like objects. I want to treat them like my sisters. And the Holy Spirit provided. Some of you are struggling mightily with stuff. And you're Christians. You're saying things to your wife. You're saying things to people at work. You're acting in a way that is shameful. Let's be real. It makes its way back to me some way or another. It makes its way back to me. And I know some of you are struggling. And I know for a fact you are not asking your heavenly father for the most important gift that he has to offer you so you can be a real Christian. So you can live the life that Jesus described. You can't do it by yourself. It's impossible. But with the Holy Spirit's power, as Jesus said it, nothing is impossible for you. And so this year, we want to explore, brothers and sisters, we want to explore what's the Holy Spirit going to do amongst us. Don't you want to know? I want to know. I want to see some stuff. I, I I want to experience, but more than anything, I want to experience life transformation. Monday through Sunday. That, then all the other stuff, that may be extra, but life transformation. And there's people in our fellowship that have experienced that. They're experiencing that because of the Holy Spirit. And I want to encourage you this week, every day, ask, seek, and knock. God, give me your spirit. Will he keep it from you? In a close, ongoing relationship with the Holy Spirit, God is enough. That all those desires are going to go away because God will be enough. I don't need it. I don't need it right now. In fact, the Holy Spirit's going to tell you, here's what you need to do. You need to set aside some money for the poor. You need to set aside some money for missions. You need to set aside some time, some time for people who are in need. You need to stop what you're doing and invite that person sitting next to you to come to church, to have that conversation. He's going he's gonna, to he's gonna encourage you. He's going to push you. Why are you dumbing down that voice? Just the other night, we were, we were uh, out, and, and, and I was, you know, about to leave, we, we had dinner, the whole family, at, uh, over here at Chipotle. And I saw these two guys, and they're walking out, and I'm like, okay, someone's telling me I need to talk to them. Someone is telling me to talk to them. So I said, I gotta, I gotta go talk. Can, can, can you give me a card? And then I went back and I talked to them, and I said, hey guys, I just wanna, I wanted to let you know, right over across the way, I'm part of a church. I'd love for you guys to come and know about God. Come to church with us. And one of the guys just stopped, he said, why, why are you asking us? What made you stop us? They put me on the spot. I had to answer. There was a voice that told me to ask you. A voice told me to ask you. Will you listen to that voice? Will you activate that voice in your life? In so many other areas where that voice will tell you, you don't need that. You don't need to look at her you don't need to be involved in that. There you go, you're right. Mm-hmm. You don't need him, okay? He's bad news for you. Stay clear of him. Stay clear of that. Wouldn't you want that voice loud and clear in your heart? That's what Jesus is talking about. God is enough. And we can steer through life. This is the last, the one and true one true God of the Bible. This, this is his message to you, to me. I love you. I'm willing to die for you. Jesus, Jesus was God's son, and God said, I choose you over my son. Do you know what a risk this was? Do you know what he's willing to go through for you? then lean into that relationship. 
Lean into that relationship so you can fight idolatry and whatever else is going to keep you far from God. Because he loves you. He is for you. He wants to bless you. And some of you, you're asking God for a million dollars. What if he gave it to you? Are you going to know how to manage it? Are you going to pay your taxes? Are you going to be broke in a year? I mean, he wants to bless us, guys. He already is. The fact of the matter is, he's already blessed us so much, but we're like little kids. When you get Christmas presents from your parents, the awesome gift that you would die for, and you got it, what happened two months later? Eh, I got it. What's the next thing? Guess what we do with God? The exact same thing. We pray for something, he gives it to us. We pray for something, he gives it to us. He helps us, he blesses us, and we're like spoiled children. What's the next thing? Give me more. Give me something else. Guess what we need that's going to truly satisfy our soul? Our relationship with him. From the very beginning, what did God want? Commandment number one, all I want is a relationship with you. It's first priority. And let's wrap it up here. Revelation 5, verse 9. And this is a, a glimpse of heaven, what goes on in heaven. And they're singing to Jesus. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased. What did it cost our relationship with God? You purchased for God. A ransom was paid. You purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people from every nation. Do you know this is going on right now? Do you know that there are people in, in Iraq and in Yemen and in, in, in people all over the world, in China and in India, there are people all over the world that are turning to Jesus as their Lord and Savior? Because Jesus made the purchase. And you and I get to participate in that. We get to advance the gospel. As you take the communion today, I want, I want to encourage you, if there's any idolatry in your life, if there's anything else that's going on in your life, I, I want you to just lay it in front of God and say, forgive me. And in exchange for this, give me your Holy Spirit. Forgive me and give me a new start. Guess what God will do? He's so good. He's going to give you that. Let's pray for the communion. Heavenly Father, we thank you so, so much for Jesus. Thank you, God, that you have already blessed us so much here in the land of enough. God, we pray that you'll help us to, to leverage what we have to make this world better. Father, thank you for Jesus that he purchased our relationship with you with his blood. Father, forgive us for our idolatry. Forgive us, God, for putting other things and even ourselves before you. God, forgive us for the things that we've said and done and how we've stiff-armed you. I pray for our friends that are guests here today, God, that they won't stiff-arm you anymore. God, that they'll realize that you love them and you're inviting them into a close relationship where they will only be blessed. Father, we love you. Thank you. Bless this communion. We lift up Jesus right now, his body and his blood. In Jesus' name, amen.